Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. This is the last message today in our series, Is He? And uh, the title, I'm just going to get right to the title. Today, the title of the message is, Is He a Stumbling Stone? And uh, we're going to talk about uh, what I hope is kind of a linear, uh, we're going to go through a linear journey of some of the things that happened after the birth of Jesus. And we often don't talk about those things. But in them, I see, and I think we need to see by the Holy Spirit, that there is a plan, a purpose. There's always an end that God is working things towards. And uh, from the beginning of creation, he has been working this thing together uh, for our sake, as it ultimately turns out, but also for his glory. So if you have your Bible this morning, let's jump right into the book of Luke, chapter 2, and not the Christmas story that we always read. <coughs> Excuse me, but Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, this is what it says. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And, and by the way, if you don't know this, you brilliant biblical scholars, uh, Yeshua, Jesus, is actually the same name as Joshua. Um, just, just to kind of put that in your in the back of your mind, if you, if you study this out and you understand Hebrew names, you understand why, why we call Jesus Jesus. It's a Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua. Um, but that, it's important in the Bible to note this is the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This was a predestination of who he is to be. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses, everyone say law of Moses. Law of Moses were completed. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord. Everyone say law of the Lord. All right. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, what we need to join this story with is some understanding. So the baby is brought to the temple as the law of Moses commanded. Now I'm going to create, uh, I'm going to create the difference for us this morning between the law of Moses and the law of the Lord, which for the record are in some technicalities the same thing, but we see them revealed in their outcomes as something entirely different. And I'll, I'm just going to, I'm going to pre-package that for you very quickly. In the law of Moses, we see the law of sin and death, but in the law of the Lord, we see delight. And if you think of what the psalmist wrote, he, he said, in your law, Lord, I will delight. But the law of sin and death is how we recognize and understand what sin is, and that comes through Mosaic and Levitical law in the Old Testament. So while the two are the same, since God inspired it all by the Spirit, uh, they also are different in how we should approach them. Because if we only approach the law of the Lord, or the law of God, the law of Moses, Levitical law, as a form of, of, uh, of, of punitive measures, of punishments for when we do the wrong things, we will always miss the understanding that the law is a teacher. And the law was given to us to teach us the difference between what was sin and what was righteous. Very important that we understand this because this is, the, this is a part of that scarlet thread of the cross that is being woven through all of the patterns we see in Scripture. Very, very important to remember and understand this. Um, we tend to focus on the miracle of the virgin birth, and the, the virgin birth is miraculous. No doubt about it. There's no way around this. But there's more to it than just the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. 
And I say that this morning because we need to understand this is the beauty of Scripture. It is so complexly woven together. This, if we call it a tapestry, there are so many vivid colors and patterns in there. This is beyond human uh, contemplation or understanding. How God has woven this story together. It's truly amazing. Why is it so important this morning that the first one to open the womb is holy to the Lord? Well, let's think about that in the context of the Christ coming to earth. Jesus is a lot of things to us. He does a lot of things for us. He's an amazing person on our behalf. And that's really what we're getting at. The first to, be, the first to come out of the womb, the first to open the womb, the Bible teaches, is holy. It's to be set apart. It's to be dedicated to the Lord. Because it's the first fruit of the womb. So if you're an oldest child this morning, just raise your hand, all the oldest children. See, this is, you're blessed because you, you were the first to open a womb. And, and I know that's just a weird thing to have to think about sometimes, but, you know, it's one of the defining realities of Christianity is this concept of not just being born, but being born again into the nature, into the order of who Jesus is. So the first to open the womb is holy to the Lord according to the law of the Lord different from the law of Moses, while it, of course, as I said, may be the same. The word differentiates these two. The word, as I'm saying, the word of God, uh, Jesus, the word became flesh, differentiates these two because, one, the Mosaic law falls or points to the shortfall of mankind. All have sinned, it says in Romans, and fallen short of God's glorious standard. But the law of the Lord is the one that brings blessing to us. Again, Please understand, we're, 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 we're splitting hairs principally here to understand the nature of who God is as he's revealing himself in his word. Ultimately, this is summed up in this truth, that we have fallen short, we cannot attain the standard set by God, so he sent his son to meet the mark of the standard for us and extend covering to that for us so we would then make the standard of holiness to God. All right. It's important because Jesus, as the first coming out of the womb, is not only the firstborn of the Virgin Mary, but much, much more importantly, as I said, it's one thing to, to celebrate the miraculous virgin birth, but how about celebrating this part of it, that Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead. Now, he's the firstborn of Mary, but he's also the firstborn from the tomb. Now, those of you who are paying attention say, well, what about men like Lazarus? What about the miracles of Jesus before he went to the cross and died where Jesus raised them from the dead? That's exactly what's miraculous about it. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, the firstborn from the womb of a human being by the Holy Spirit. He's the first. That's the first that ever happened. He is the firstborn from among the dead because he raised himself back to life by the power of God. Jesus Christ was raised to life by whose power? Well, by the power of God. But who's God? Well, it's, it's Jesus. So you see, no one else had done that before. And this is why Scripture calls him the firstborn from among the dead. Not only that, it calls him the firstborn of many brethren. And probably a few more firstborns than that, but we're just going to keep it to this this morning. The key to the whole plan of salvation is that Jesus, being a type of first by the law of Moses, by the law of the Lord, is the one who is capable of then redeeming all who follow after him. 
So the principle of first fruits, we've taught on this before at Generations Church. The principle of first fruits, if I have cows, which I have cow, I have cows. So if I have a heifer cow, a cow that has never had a baby before, the right thing for me to do, not that I've always been able to do this, but the right thing for me to do is the first calf that comes from that cow belongs to the Lord. Now there's a few ways that went down in the Old Testament. One was sacrifice. But there were also redemptions that happened. So in the instance of the firstborn, this is what we see in the book of Luke chapter 2. You didn't sacrifice your firstborn son or daughter, firstborn male who breaks the womb. All the firstborn males said amen. amen. We didn't have to be sacrificed. Isn't that nice? But in our place, there's an offering made to God. And in the case of people who were poor, because they couldn't afford a lamb maybe, they could afford to go and catch a couple of young pigeons. Now, I don't know about you, but who here in this room could go catch a couple of young pigeons? You, you don't know that you could, but you all could. You just got to go over. I think Church of Christ is probably a good place. Uh, you know, God bless them over there on, on their sloped roof. Where are you, you, you seen the pigeons hanging out? Listen, pigeons, if you grew up on the farm, you know that pigeons are actually not that hard to go get. You can trap them. You can shoot them pretty easily. You can, you can go get your sacrifice fairly easily. And so this is an amazing picture of who Jesus is and what he does in the fullness of time that God sent him to earth. I love this part of his story. So Jesus is the first sacrifice for sin, but when he was the firstborn from the womb, he was redeemed by a first offering as well. See, Mary and Joseph took him after eight days had passed before his circumcision. They then named him Jesus, and they gave a sacrifice according to to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the Redeemer was redeemed by the law. This is very, very important for us to understand. The Redeemer was redeemed by the law. And let me explain to you why this is so important. If the Redeemer is not redeemed by the law that God gave, how can he redeem anything else from under the law? We tend to focus on the miraculous birth of Jesus, and we focus on the miraculous death and resurrection of Jesus. Both of these are amazingly important and truly miraculous, but what about all the stuff in the middle, like the fact that Jesus, the sacrifice, a sacrifice had to be made for him in order for him to be purified under the law. And I think that we stop the Christmas story too soon sometimes, and we don't follow it through those next eight days and the months that followed that. Sacrifice was made for the sacrifice of all men. No offering befitting the kind of glory that he deserved. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't a fancy purebred bull that was sacrificed to redeem Jesus as the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. But he was, he was redeemed as the firstborn probably by a couple of pigeons, maybe doves. Let's read on. Verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Everyone say Simeon. <clears throat> and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the customs of the law... 
Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Everyone say salvation. salvation. Which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation. Everyone say revelation. A lot of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. Verse 34 goes on. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, there's actually a lot of soteriology in here because uh, as, we, as, we, as we go through this, there's some really important words which I tried to pause on and have you say. Simeon was waiting for what Scripture has called the consolation of Israel. Now, how many of you know what the word consolation is? Not constellation, but consolation. Consolation, when I was a kid, was the brown ribbon everyone got at the track meet. All right? And if you're laughing, you're old enough to remember what those days were like. Kids, for you growing up these days, everybody gets a consolation prize. There was a time when that wasn't the way it always worked. But kind of at the beginning of the millennial generation uh, showing up, which I have been in and out of, depending on who you talk to now, for the past six months. I can't decide what I am anymore. Uh, and no one will tell me, so it doesn't really matter. But there was a consolation prize given to anyone who was willing to show up. That's not the consolation that we're talking about here. And so we go, when we can't understand the word in English and how it applies, a wise person will go deeper into the Word of God and look at it in the original text, which would be Greek. Koinonia Greek to be specific. And Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a very, very important word to every Christian. The word is paraklesis. Everyone say paraklesis. Now those of you who are brilliant biblical scholars, which I know many of you are in this church because of the great pastor this church has. Just checking. Paraklesis is a very similar word to another Greek word that we've talked about before. Anybody want to take a stab at what that is? Paraklesis is similar to what word in the Greek? What's that? Parachute? Well, that was, that's definitely English. Somebody's saying it, paraclete. And these, these two words are very, very connected in that in the Greek language, they absolutely share the same root. They come from the same place. Paraclesis and parakletos. Parakletos is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And paraklesis is the consolation of Israel. Now, the paraklesis is one who stands in court to deliver first-hand evidence. So when we just read in English, well, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's a much, much bigger, more important word than we're initially going to understand. Now, when, of course, you go back and read this in the Greek and then fold that back into the whole counsel of God's word, it makes perfect sense that there is a way bigger deal going on here than what we might first read at a glance. The paraclesis, one who stands in court to deliver firsthand evidence. Properly a call done by someone close beside 
We're beginning to talk about someone who has first-hand evidence, first-hand experience with what is going on. A personal exhortation that delivers the evidence that will stand up in God's court. Now we're moving into an entirely different reality if we apply this to the person of Jesus. Why is Jesus Christ the consolation of Israel? Because he is the one who will bear witness to the shedding of his own blood when we all stand before the judgment seat. And we all will stand before the judgment seat. At the end of our life, Jesus will judge us. Our Father in heaven, he will judge us. And we will be very glad, those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, when our attorney that represents us walks into the room with nail scars in his hands and feet. That's going to be very, very important. But this is what the Greek language is portraying. And the English just falls sadly short sometimes. Someone close beside, personal exhorter that delivers the evidence that stands up in God's court. And it shares its root, as I said, with the parakletos, who is our advocate that Jesus invited us to have, invited us to take part in, that Jesus sent to us, who is the Holy Spirit. Now let's move on. My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon had this promise from God, as we read, that he would not die until he saw the promise of God's kingdom come to earth. Until he had seen the Messiah, until he had seen the one who would deliver Israel. Now, unfortunately for Israel, they were all waiting for someone to deliver them in a political sense. And let's just pause for a brief moment this morning and remember that the church, while we are influenced and have influence over things that are political, we do not live for political measure. We do not live for political gain. We live to establish and to bring heaven to earth, to establish the culture of heaven in this world. Because the kingdom of heaven is, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is already among you. So, So just for the record, when we get bogged down in political sidebars all the time about whether or not Donald Trump is this or who is that or Jason Kennedy this or that, listen, it's fine to have your political opinions, but would you just shut your mouth for a little while and try to bring someone closer to Jesus? Because that's what is important in the life of a believer. Governments will come and go. All authority, Scripture says, is established by God. So just let that be. Vote according to your conscience and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But just so you always remember this, you're never going to get to vote for Jesus. They will all be falling short of the standard. They will all be imperfect. They will all be sadly misled and misleading in and of themselves. We will always be politically the blind leading the blind at some level. By the way, Jesus will not be elected into his kingdom. He wasn't elected into his kingdom. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died by his own power. The power of God raised himself from the dead. That's why he's the king of kings. All right, I got to keep moving. I'm getting too excited with these little rabbit trails. All right, my eyes have seen the salvation. This word in the Greek is, again, salvation. What is salvation? Well, if you've been around long, unless you've heard a few messages about what salvation is, but the Greek word used here is soterion. Everyone say soterion. You just sound so smart and holy when you guys speak that biblical language. I love hearing it. Uh, and And... It is derived 
from this Greek word sotir, which directly means savior. My eyes have seen your salvation. No, my eyes have seen your savior. And properly applied, it is salvation. Now, this is what's beautiful. It's not just that properly applied sotir and sotirion means salvation. It is actually properly applied salvation. How many of you know that salvation can be misapplied? Do you understand that salvation can be misapplied? We see it all the time in people's lives. We see it all the time in misrepresenting ways. We see it happen intentionally and accidentally, but nonetheless, we do have the opportunity to witness this happening. And the soterion, the, the, sorry, the soterion that we're talking about here is not just a savior or properly salvation, but it is the appropriate application of salvation to a scenario. It emphasizes the direct application of God's salvation. What am I trying to say to you? I'm trying to say that we need to understand the purpose of salvation is not just to save. And this is something I think the church has, has maybe, maybe created an ideology that it doesn't really want to have in itself. To be saved just for the sake of being saved is rather pointless, wouldn't you agree? If you walk out onto the ice somewhere in the city today, and you fall through the ice, and I, the superhero pastor, happen to be walking by, and I see that you are falling through the ice, and I, I, I crawl out there, and it's a miracle that I'm not falling through the ice, and I'm bigger than most of you. If I don't fall through the ice and I take you by the hand and I pull you out of the ice and back to safety, what good did that do? It saved you. But isn't the good that will come of it, doesn't it stem from what you do with that salvation? Doesn't, doesn't all the goodness happen after you say, man, I just about died, I have been saved, and now... You see, it's the and now that brings the right application of salvation. And if we all stop at salvation, we've missed the point entirely. There is an application that God wants you to find for your salvation. There's something, in other words, he wants you to apply yourself to in following him and being obedient to him that will bring greater meaning to his sacrifice at the cross. So important that we understand applied salvation. The application of what God's salvation means, what it can cause, what it can do. The application of his salvation applied directly to my life is the influence of grace now empowering me to do things that I formerly could not do. I could preach a whole day on that alone. He goes on, he's a... He says, I've seen a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the Greek word here, that Greek word revelation, because again, we, 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 we get focused and pop culture gets us to focus on the wrong thing. Who's heard of the word apocalypse? What is the apocalypse? Somebody tell me, yell it out. What's the apocalypse? End of the world. And depending on your denominational swing, it may or may not involve zombies, right? 
If you're, if you're John Stauffer, Daryl Mayer, Curtis Hansen, any of that group, you probably believe the apocalypse has something to do with a zombie invasion. And that's fine with me. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not going to split hairs. Right? But see, we, we throw around this word apocalypse, but not understanding what it truly is. But there's a better word I want to give you than apocalypse. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. That word revelation is apocalypsis. And it means the revelation, or, or, or more directly, the unveiling, principally used of the revelation of Jesus, who is the Word, especially a particular spiritual manifestation of Christ. Now, we tend to take this whole follow Jesus thing as just one big picture, failing to understand that when Simeon was quoting what had been said about Jesus before, that there is something so specific and so direct involved for every person. Because it is particular as a spiritual manifestation. The, the revelation that comes not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, is specific in its nature. This is all within nine days of Jesus being born. And this is why I want us to camp on this this morning just for a little while longer. I don't want to drag you and keep you back at Christmas because I know we're headed to the new year. But these verses that follow after the shepherds decided they should go and tell about what they'd seen. In a mere eight days after the birth of Jesus, if you will look into what the Greek and the Hebrew and the fulfillment of prophecy are saying from the Old Testament and in through the New, there is a dynamic shift that has already begun to happen in the hearts of men. A new opportunity is now not on the horizon, but right in front of humanity to be able to change and be changed by the Spirit of God and His presence living in the world. It's such a beautiful and amazing gift when Simeon held up that child and began to bless him and said, my eyes have seen salvation. Not just salvation, but a revelation even for the Gentiles. That's you and me, just so you know. If you're, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And that word Gentile in the Greek, of course, is ethnos, which, in, which encompasses all nations other than Israel. So if you ever wonder why we just go Jews and Gentiles in churches, that's why. It's because there's, 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 there's the Jews, and then there's all the other nations of the earth. Because God had one chosen people, which we, by Jesus, are so fortunate, not fortunate, so blessed to be adopted and grafted into. It's an amazing thing. Um, <coughs> And then he goes on to say something that becomes a little more difficult. Appointed for the rise and fall of many and assigned to be opposed. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. He goes on to say, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary, to the end. Everyone say, to the end. And, and just so we understand this, it's, it's to, what, to what end? It's making a statement about the end, the reason for why the soul will be pierced with a sword. To the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus Christ came into this world 
God, Emmanuel, wrapped in flesh. The living word of God revealed in human form. Appointed to be the rising and falling of many. Appointed to be a sign that endures intense opposition. Tell me you don't see that in the world today. I feel like these words may not have appeared to Mary in that moment as a profound blessing. <laughs> How would you like it if you're holding your brand new baby and, you know, good old Pastor Trav comes along, picks up your baby and says, oh, you know, he's so cute and he's so wonderful and bad, bad things are going to happen. I mean, people are going to not like this baby. And it's going to destroy your heart, Mom. It's going to pierce your soul as if someone put a sword through you. That, that's just not the kind of prophetic word I want. I don't know about you. But nonetheless, it was the prophetic word and the truth that needed to exist for Jesus to be who he actually is. I think we need to put a great deal of trust in the Lord for what is prophesied as a part of this. Because when he, when he says, pierce even your own soul, to the end, that thoughts, what is the end? What is the purpose that God has for our hearts to be broken, like Mary's were broken? What is the purpose of God? It's to reveal what's in the hearts of men. There's an interesting aspect that I think as men we will have a hard time understanding because a mother's heart completely reflecting the image of God as she has created it, it bears a different kind of testimony, doesn't it? For a mother's soul to be pierced as if with a sword, that's different than for a man. And I hope you can understand the, the, the picture and the beauty that's actually in this. Because it's different and it's and it's actually profound. He's not just simply talking about the fact that one day Mary would stand at the foot of the cross and watch her own son be crucified. It's not as simple as that. But as a mother, she endured every scornful word that was spoken against him. As a mother, she endured every plot to take his life up to and including the one that finally did. As a mother... She endured the imagery of watching him be beaten and scorched. And you know what the perspective that a mother can bring, that a, a dad, a male, a father can never bring? It's a different realization of compassion in pain. And it only comes in my heart by revelation from, from my Father in heaven, the depth and the agony of that pain. And as men, we can find it. It's just that we're not really wired for it. And so it's important. As God lays this story out for us, he gives us his perspective. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like as a mother who treasured all these things up in her heart to be told, your soul is going to be run through by a sword. But it is to an end. It is to an end. 
I don't know if you've ever seen an angry mama bear in human form. But when on behalf of her children, her heart is pierced, what comes out? Humanity comes out, doesn't it? Carnality comes out. Now, I've seen some mama bears I wouldn't want to tangle with. I'm married to one. I don't want to tangle with in that, in that state. But you know, women, and you might not know this, but you're fallible too. Well, I thought that'd be funnier. Never mind, I didn't even say it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're both fallible. We're both, we're both subject to pain. And when someone draws pain out of us, carnality comes out too. The reality that we have missed the standard becomes apparent. All of that sin that really does live in us is left open. I'm grateful that that was the means. Because like the need for the law to come and point our sin to us, we need to identify and bear with Christ in his suffering so that we can understand our own brokenness. See, having our soul pierced because of what Jesus did, what Jesus went through, all of this working together helps us understand the value of what he went through. Helps us understand the value of this, this applied salvation, this great salvation. And I think for that reason, not just women, but we men and women, all who are created in the image of God, are all pierced to the soul by the reality of Jesus. And this piercing reveals what is in our hearts when it happens. The two men who are on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus appeared and began walking with them, after they had the conversation with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they looked at each other and said, did not our hearts burn within us as we walked along the road with him? Why? It's because when we encounter Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's been through, and even though he's been through all of this, still remains the same, our hearts are pierced and what is inside of us becomes apparent. You see, it's all wrapped up in who he is and why he came and what was said about him. And it's always to that end. We stumble on Jesus, every one of us. The title of the message is, Is He a Stumbling Stone? And while it might seem somewhat anticlimactic, like, you know, Pastor Trash, shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be ending this series on, like, is he King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I just want to say you'll never get there. You never, ever will get to King of Kings and Lord of Lords if you don't stumble over Jesus first. You can't get there without it. The, the apostles, Peter, had to stumble over Jesus. The writers of the Gospels, the, those who were inspired to write the New Testament, they all stumbled over Jesus. The apostle Paul stumbled over Jesus. The great fathers of the church all through these generations have all stumbled. The mothers of the house have stumbled over Jesus because stumbling over Jesus is what allows us to find ourselves face down before him and with him, and it's what allows us to elevate him so high above who we are and what we are. 
You cannot worship Him unless you stumble upon Him. Here's what it says in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. I can't say it much better than Peter says it here. To you who believe, he is precious. But to those who do not believe, he is a stumbling stone and a rock that will make them fall. And I think we should never get too far away from our salvation as we're working it out with Jesus by the Holy Spirit that we forget that just moments before we stumbled on Jesus and he became beautiful, we too are unbelievers. But maybe this will help you understand why you can't worship him for who he is unless you stumble over him. He's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. What does that mean? They stumble because they disobey the message. Do do you not understand that those who disobey is every one of us that will ever be born and live or die in the world? Formerly, we were haters of God, the Bible says. We walked and we lived according to the lust of the flesh. But we stumble on Jesus and something happens. Why do we stumble on Jesus? Because he's perfect and beautiful and the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone of all that is. And it is his perfection that we stumble on. It is his glory that we stumble on. It's his beauty that we stumble on. It's his cross that we stumble on. It's his greatness and his mercy that we stumble on. We were destined to stumble on him because we were imperfect and unholy and fallen out of relationship with God. But after we have stumbled on him and we yield our life to him, We become what it says in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You know, we've changed the language in this church on even what it means to be a Christian. We We've changed the language to avoid political association or social association. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to bend our will to him and to do what he said. Not that we're saved by works, but that because of his grace, we can actually do the things he says to do. It's a both-and situation. 
My works don't save me, but my works are necessary in, in the life that he's called me to because that's how I'm obedient to him. And unless we wrestle with this stone, unless we stumble over this stone, unless we take the time to appreciate what the rock, what Jesus is, we will never come to the place where we can truly worship and adore him for who and what he is. I am God's special possession. Because of what? Because of my works? No. But because I stumble on Jesus as God predestined me to. The Calvinists and the Arminians have spent years arguing over eternal salvation. Does God orchestrate everything? Listen, God is God. And he orchestrates what he orchestrates. And if you think you can get your head around that while you're having blood pumping through your veins, you are sorely mistaken. His ways are higher than ours. <laughs> we are hopelessly lost in the intellectual battle to understand him. But what we can understand is very simple and very, very plain. God predestined me for failure. Anybody have a problem with that? Well, pastor, God, the Bible says God tempts no one with evil. God didn't even have to tempt me with evil for me to fall short of any standard. Because Jesus is perfect, I stumble over him. And we need to understand that from the beginning of Scripture to the end and for all eternity, that God has been working this at a level that we will never understand until at least we see him as he really is. And even then, I'm not too sure we're going to get it. You can't beat God at this game. He is who he says he is. And he predestined you to fail, to stumble over Jesus so that you could recognize how beautiful that cornerstone is and build the, the life God has called you to build on the foundation that he wants us to live in. I'm, I'm trying so hard to make this linear for you. But you know what? The fact is, every one of us needs a revelation of who Jesus is. And not just once, but every day. I need a revelation every morning that I wake up of who Jesus is and what he's doing and why he's doing the things he Not that I, I become a useless person who lives with my head in the clouds, but just someone who gives serious adult thought to what God might want to do today. To what God might have in store today for someone. Jesus is intentionally placed at the feet of all people who walk in darkness. God placed Jesus at my feet so I would stumble over him when I was very young. And you know what? Every single day that I wake up, I could look down at my feet and I see Jesus and I'm going to trip over him. If you look down at your feet this morning when you got up and you didn't see Jesus, one of two things is going on. One, it's possible that you don't actually know him. Two, you just forgot that you're supposed to look for him every day. And I'm not trying to bring condemnation to you. I'm not trying to manipulate conviction in your life. I'm just simply saying when we stand back and appreciate what God's word is in its fullness, he will take us on some of the grandest adventures we can imagine. 
He will take you into intellectual places and realities that you are simply going to spin and get dizzy over. The plan of God is revealed in the coming of Jesus as much as in the being of Jesus. His coming is as much a part of the story as his going. He's revealed in prophecy. He's revealed in the form of humanity. He's revealed in all eternity. And he's the stumbling stone that brings down the failure of my humanity. At the same time, that stumbling stone raises me to life in him. I'm going to invite Pastor Amy to come and close the message. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.